birds are singing, the sun is out, spring has sprung. Has your wardrobe followed suit? If not, you can get a refresh with Bombas, my favorite brand for socks, tees, and underwear that also has an amazing mission that we support wholeheartedly. Because for every incredible comfy item that I get from Bombas, they match with a donation to someone who is unhoused. Get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash hard things and use code hard things for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash hard things and use code hard things at checkout. Think about how delicately you hold your baby, you dress your baby, and you feed your baby. We do that because they're adorable, of course, but also because their skin is delicate. Know this. There is only one diaper brand that we recommend to give you the gentle protective care your little one needs, and that's Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Their Swaddler's diaper absorbs wetness better versus the leading value brand, and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection to keep your baby's skin dry, healthy, and beautiful. And when you use Swaddlers in tandem with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, you'll keep your baby's skin healthy. The wipes are made from 100% plant-based cloth, and you won't have to worry about tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets it's match. That's right. So download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. And I continue to believe the best people are free. Welcome back to We Can Do Hard Things. Thanks for coming back. We came back too. We're really, really excited about this day because we have one of our favorites, Dr. Galit Atlas, back with us today. You will remember Dr. Galit Atlas as the author of the international bestseller, Emotional Inheritance, A Therapist, Her Patience, and the Legacy of Trauma, which is freaking amazing and has been translated into 23 languages. She is a psychoanalyst and clinical supervisor in private practice in New York City and is on the faculty of NYU's postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. If you have not already, please go back and listen to episode 97 with Galit about how family secrets shape us, which so we have heard back from so many people that it changed the way they think about their families and their lives. So... Thank you for coming back. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be today. Good, because we've got a really deeply important subject to discuss today, which we thought you were the only person that we could really trust to talk to, <laughs> to talk us through this one. Difficult, difficult. There you go. <laughs> topic. We actually decided to do this episode in response to what um, so many people have called us to talk about. So let's hear from Catherine. Hi there. My name is Catherine and I need to tell you about the hardest thing I've ever had to do. It's been almost a year and there isn't good language for it. I say I broke up with my mother. It's been incredibly difficult, but I made a promise to my child self 
that I would never let that vicious, malignant, emotional, and verbal abuse happen again. I want to say that if there was an alternative where a safe relationship could happen, I would take it that I still love her and that this experience has been like having my mother die and not being able to talk about it. I would really appreciate being able to have a discussion with the We Can Do Hard Things community about that. Thank you. Mm. Catherine. Do you hear that story often? I do. I do. And I think lately even more. And I think that Catherine presents here really one of the most painful struggles that comes with estrangement. And that is the ability to mourn your loss. Mm. She's describing really how her adult self protected her in ways that she couldn't do as a child, right? Yeah. And and I'm sure, I'm sure that a big part of you, Catherine, it feels proud of protecting that child who used to be so helpless and alone as, as we always are as children, right? And, and of course, of course she would want to take any alternative option because, because I think deep inside we're all children who mm-hmm. want to have good parent. And, and we forget that sometimes. But I have never met anyone who doesn't long for a good parent. And it sounds to me that uh, if her mother could be able to do the work herself, and I'm sure we'll talk about how we do the work and what work we're talking about here, mm-hmm. um, and change, uh, she would be willing to try and repair the relationship. But for now, the main word that we would use is paradoxical, right? There is a paradox here. Paradoxical thing in this process is the ability to allow sadness and grief. And I'll say one more thing, and because I think this is a conflict that cannot be resolved, and that's the mm. conflict of attachment and pain, the conflict of love and abuse. Mm. And because mm. it's so confusing when the person you relied on the most was also the person who hurt you the most. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Right? Mm. When the person you needed the most was also the person who betrayed you the most. Or when the person you, you still love, the way she describes, right? And is also the person you decided to not have in your life. You see, this journey will be filled with paradox. I think it's the paradox that is in the heart of the attachment style that is called disorganized attachment style. And mm. in those of you who know a little bit of attachment theory know about the anxious. Avoidant, right? And the, the disorganized is the last category that would add it. Mm. And that attachment style is associated with abuse. And in infant research, you see that the disorganized and, and often abuse of frightened infant expresses when the mother comes back. The uh, attachment theory is always about reunions. Can you tell us more about that right now for people who have never heard about attachment theory, what you're talking about? So, attachment theory is the idea that right the idea that each of us have an attachment style and mm-hmm. it started in research john bobby was the first one who um talked about it and he looked at uh, at animals and and uh, their parents right and how the child needs what he called a secure base 
he talks about proximity. If there is a noise, the child would look for the parent to hide in their arms, to protect them. And then from there, the, the research developed to um, a research that is called, it has a strange name, it's called The Strange Situation. Have you heard yes. of that? The yes, Strange Situation, very yes. known, uh, Mary and Forth. And what they did is that they took infants and they separated them from their, back then it was mostly mothers, and told the mother to leave the room. And what they measured is how the, the infant respond when the mother comes back. So mm -hmm. I think sometimes when we talk about attachment, we don't always know that actually the research looks at the reunion. What happens in moments of reunion? And what mm -hmm. they found is that uh, there were two, at the beginning, only two categories. Uh, the anxious one, which was that when the infant kept crying, the mother was already back and the, the infant kept crying and crying, crying as if she did not come back. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was as a way, if we think about survival, and that's what's underneath all of that, it's a way to engage the mother. Because again, every child wants a good mother or a good mm -hmm. parent. So everything we do is in order to engage our parents. Mm -hmm. So the anxious baby says, I need you, I need you, I need you, I need you. No, don't, don't ever leave me. The avoidant one was the one that when the parents come back, by the way, I have a dog like that, that does that. Oh my that. gosh, I was just Do you thinking have that? about Hattie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and when the, when the parent comes back, the avoidant child uh, just makes believe they didn't come back. They just mm -hmm. keep doing what they're doing as if separation never happened, reunion never happened, right? Again, we can think about that as a defense. It's, it's a way to manage. Some people think that it's because if the baby cries, then the, the parent will reject them, that it's a response mm -hmm. to rejection. But since sure. we know that we will never do that to our animals, uh, we also have to understand that it is not only as a response to the parent, mm. it's also as a way to manage something that feels too much. And the last category that was added was disorganized attachment, because uh, the researchers that divided it to two suddenly realized that there is some kids that behave in a very strange way that mm -hmm. do not match any category. And they looked at it and what these kids seemed is like when the parent came back, in that case, the, the mother came back, it looked like they really want to be close to the mom, but also were behaving like they, like they were afraid of her. They actually said in the research, there's something like very bizarre behavior that they didn't understand. Hmm. And so what we realize is, and I think that's where they edited it, that these kids very often were kids who were abused. And they both had the need to be close to the parents. They needed to, the need for the protection, right? Mm -hmm. For the secure base. But also the fear of being close to the parents. Yes. So in the research, mm. we really see that. We really see that the person that protects them, that feeds them, that they depend on the most was also the person who scares them and who hurts them the most. So Galit, those people, those young, young ones are, are the ones who are already experiencing the paradox. Exactly. That's what the disorganization is, is the paradox. I need you, but you hurt me. I need you, but you hurt me. Yes. Are those the people who would eventually end up as a Catherine, yes. who then become, have enough power 
to protect themselves in adult, as an adult? And is that what estrangement is? I think that those were the people that will have the hardest time, actually, with cutting their parents off. Estrangement is not only about abuse, right? The abused mm. children are those who will hold a lot of conflicted feeling and will have really hard time because, as Catherine said, she loves her mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She also loves her. It's very paradoxical to love somebody who abuses you. And we see that in relationships later in life, right? Even in yes. marriages. Yes, absolutely. So what you, is estrangement? How do you define estrangement and how do you see it happening in families? Estrange- you said more than ever now. Yeah. What we see now, and I think the research show that uh, one every four families are estranged. And I don't know that there is an exact definition for it because I think that it really, um, we don't have in the research all the information. I think there is so much shame and guilt and it depends, right? Do you, is estrangement about completely not talking to your parents? Is it about uh, managing their relationship somehow? So you see them only in the holidays, right? I think all of that is a little uh, tricky. Um, definition. Mm -hmm. But what we do know um, is that there are many reasons for estrangement. Many times it's the children that make that decision, but not always. And we start with uh, conflicts related to values, religion, politics, parents of LGBTQ kids who reject their children. There is a lot of homophobia. There is a lot of transphobia when you look at the right in situations of estrangements that come from that place. Of course, the increased political and cultural polarization in -hmm. recent years Mm -hmm. created rifts between people. One of the most, you know, common things is money, money. And that was always Mm -hmm. there, right? Money, inheritance, wills. Of course, there is addictions and mental health. And what I hear from people who specialize in estrangement, and one of my friends could swear that that is in his practice, 70% of the people are there after uh, in something that is related to divorce. Mm. (laughs) And it's so interesting that it's so overrepresented because I think it goes to this whole phenomenon of there generally being a third party involved in some way, because I think that's a super interesting part to look at. Like, is it healthy development when you have a third party that emotionally supports you and you realize what you had before was not emotional Mm -hmm. support or Uh is it a manipulative thing? But this idea that some somehow this disorganization, to go back to that word, the disorganization of the family unit via divorce mm-hmm. leads to, well, I need to be loyal somewhere and therefore break ties somewhere in order to truly be loyal to the aggrieved party. Okay. So you're saying in that version of estrangement that, that I haven't cut everybody off. I'm saying I choose one parent and I am estranged from the other parent. Right. I think the definition is important to go back to because there's this whole phenomenon right now of quiet quitting in the workplace, which I feel like is mirrored a lot in relationship where Mm. we're kind of not having a dramatic exit or a physical withdrawal, but we have this gradual disengagement and a reduced investment in the relationship. And so 
that kind of emotional distance that I feel like a lot of folks are having within their families is a very big phenomenon. But I think in this case, what we're talking about is not that passive estrangement, but the active engagement in which there is a schism that both parties will point to and say, we are estranged. Mm -hmm. Whereas in, in the emotional distancing, maybe one party is aware of it and the other party is just blissfully <laughs> unaware. Yeah. And that's what the divorce research, that is actual, right. we are now estranged because of X. Right. And you remember, you know the the, the term gray divorce? Have you heard yeah. of that? Tell us about gray yeah, divorce. Gray divorce, sadly, it's about the fact that our, ha our hair becomes gray when we are in certain age. Oh, and so okay. it is. I didn't know that. I haven't <laughs> experienced it. <laughs> it's good to know. We'll Modern have to Google hair. that okay. after. Yeah. We're not so, aware. Gray divorce is usually divorce between 50 and 70 years old when the uh, kids are uh, adult. And those are different, uh, different um, kind of estrangements that happen when the kids are young or when the children are uh, grown-ups already. Mm. And I, I agree that a lot of what is happening around divorce, and if if I'll focus on gray divorce, is that in those situations, the reason is sometimes it is the, the you know, affair or uh, something that happens that the children are uh, protecting one part. Many times uh, the divorce creates a crack in the family that allows mm. a lot of the family ghosts to come mm. to the surface. Things mm, that yes. were there before, right? Yeah. Including mm -hmm. some family pathology, power dynamic between the parents, secret loyalties between family members. One of the mm -hmm. parents and one of the children become suddenly like uh, together in a, in a different way. But all of those things usually, which I think is, happens also when we talk about money, because as we know, money is never money. Uh, and wills, mm -hmm. somebody dies or something ends, and we see that in the ending, that's where there is a crack, and a lot mm -hmm. of the things come from under the surface to the surface and create uh, estrangement. Here's an honest question for you, with what I think is a pretty easy answer. When it comes to grocery shopping, would you rather wander the aisles of a store aimlessly looking up and down your self-made list? Or would you rather take a fun quiz about your individual goals and preferences and have a personalized cart built for you? Not to mention all the recipe recommendations and home delivery that come with it. If the latter option sounds more attractive, which I think it should, it for sure does for me, then you'll want to check out Hungry Root. I loved the creamy chicken and bell pepper Alfredo that I tried. It was so yummy. And the added bonus of doing all my shopping from home made it all the better. Right now, Hungry Root is offering We Can Do Hard Things listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to hungryroot.com slash hard things to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. For life. That's hungryroot.com slash hard things. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. I'm a mama bear, a mama cheetah about protecting 
everybody who listens to this podcast's mental health. Our kids, uh, a few months ago, one of my kids came home and started talking about this person who was mistreating her at school. And my other kid walked in the kitchen and said, ah, cat. And I said, what is cat? And and she goes, cut all ties, (laughs) cut all ties, right? right. We have erred on the side of cat in this family. (laughs) If your mental health is threatened by somebody's behavior, fuck them has been our general (laughs) response. Okay. Boundaries. Out, out. So what I find fascinating about what you've been discussing recently is that in many cases, like Catherine's many, many cases, estrangement is the absolute best way to protect your current mental health, to protect that child you were that could not protect themselves that estrangement is a very, very difficult paradox and also correct. Would you say that? I would say that in a hundred percent about abuse. We're talking about lines. Abuse is the line. Where there is abuse, you are, that that's the line that says, no, abuse is not allowed. And of course, I think in the last few years, we have been living in a major crisis. And I think that we all feel a little broken inside. And mm-hmm. we have been, right, the world became unstable and unsafe. And a lot of things happened in the last few years that made us and us, I mean, especially women, mm-hmm. uh, very uh, unsafe and frightened and angry. And and we think about the young people who were born into a planet that is burning. You mm-hmm. you think about this, the, the implication of that and our basic human rights violations, and we couldn't trust our leaders. We'll talk about leaders and parents, right? Uh, We were talking about disorganized people that's supposed to protect us, that's supposed to know the truth, that's supposed to, right, to to tell us the truth, and we can't trust them. Mm -hmm. And and of course, I can't leave out uh, the COVID and how Mm -hmm. we can't really assess yet the full emotional impact of the pandemic on us. Do you equate the rise to of estrangement with the incredible lack of control that we have experienced over the last part. And we, so we try to control what we can control, which is like, I'm unconsciously or, or consciously feeling so unsafe all the time. Yeah. So damn it, I will control what I can control, which is the, the people around me. And I will not allow anyone near me who hurts me because that feels yes, familiar to me. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And I feel so frightened about so many things mm-hmm. that I need to protect myself. I need to protect yes. myself from anything that might damage my mental health, as you said, because, because listen, there's nothing new about, uh, about difficult relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Or about conflicts or even about the wish to distance ourselves from our families. Mm-hmm. But we have changed We have changed because in the last few years, uh, we finally made our mental health a priority. Mm -hmm. And and I do think it's related to COVID. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is so true. Suddenly we talk about trauma. We we let ourselves really say, no, no, that's not okay. And I do think it's related to political atmosphere and like think like, no, 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 that's not okay with me. And main, make mental health a priority, focus on the needs to feel safe, protect, to protect yourself. You know how much the word boundary became? Like, yes. So yes. major mm-hmm. boundaries, but, and we have to remember that there is always a but also. Mm-hmm. At the same mm-hmm. time, I, I do think we're more por- polarized as a society. There is yeah. much more either or thinking, splitting. Mm-hmm. We struggle much more with trusting people. 
And it's harder for us to resolve conflicts and to negotiate our needs. Which makes so much sense that this would be in an all or nothing time. Right. That estrangement would would skyrocket. I mean, I have been thinking so much about being a person who had no boundaries, then being a person who has so many boundaries mm. to the point where I have made myself a bit lonely. And so what's so interesting is that you have found that in an effort, this is why it's interesting to me, is that in an effort to protect our mental health, we may have, in some cases, chosen estrangement when we didn't have to. And why that matters is not that it's the right or wrong thing to do or that it's kinder to not do that. It's because (laughs) you've said that in an effort to help our mental health, our mental health ends up worse. Exactly right. That our relationships, yes, our relationships are directly related to our well-being, right? Right. And that's what you were saying before about your own relationships. And, and, And it's not either or. So in some situations, especially situations of abuse or situations where there is no hope for any change and there is too much pain. Yeah. Estrangement sometimes is the only solution and it's the healthier solution. I think it's important to notice, like with our caller, that it's end both. It is the healthiest solution for you and there is still going to be tremendous grief. I mean, when I think about it, I think about the research that's been done on queer folks who have been in abusive church environments and they leave their home church. And although that is absolutely the healthiest thing for them to do, there is nonetheless a deep well of conflict and pain along these belonging lines and the loss that they experienced even though it was healthiest for them to leave. So I think we just have to see that group of people and say, you are grieving and this is healthiest for you. Mm -hmm. And then there's another group of people where you are grieving and there might be another way Mm -hmm. for you. How do we know if there's another way? Because you call it rupture. Rupture is is estrangement. Mm -hmm. That's when the family structure has been ruptured. We are not going back. It's estrangement. But, and then you talk about repair, that there mm-hmm. is a whole category of families that things are not okay. Right. And we're not going to go on the, the way they are. Um, but that perhaps rupture is not what's best for everyone's mental health in the family because what people really want at the end of the day is to be safe around each other. Yeah. Because when you think about it, estrangement is not a great discussion of boundaries because it makes us never even have to deal with boundaries. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know that's what I think. It's like sometimes it is a boundary and sometimes it is in our way to create healthy boundaries, right? Because it's mm -hmm. it's a solution. But, you know, I think what you're saying is right. First of all, rupture is sometimes uh, the estrangement itself and sometimes rupture is what leads to estrangement. There is a conflict. There is something. Mm. And what we know from infant research, for example, is that secure relationships are based on the ability to repair. Now, mm. of course, not every relationship is secure and not every relationship could be secure. And going mm-hmm. back to our previous conversation, there are sometimes situations that we cannot repair. And what we have to do is to mourn the inability to repair. But mm-hmm. if we go back to uh, rep- uh, rupture and repair for a second, one of the 
research that I love the most, it's by um, Cohen and Tronic, saying that good enough parents are slightly mismatched with their infants 70% of the time. Do you know this research? It means that we Mm -hmm, do the mm -hmm. right thing only 30% of the time and the rest of the time we're working on repairing. Repairing or reparation. Wow. That feels right. That makes me feel a lot better about parenting. I feel like that's the essence of relationships. I mean, even think about romantic relationships or friendships. How much of the time we do the right thing? And so Mm -hmm. uh, 70% of the time you don't probably. And 30% of the time you do. And the rest of the time you go back and try to repair and match and, and, you know, and do something to connect and let them know that they can trust you, right? Mm -hmm. Because through the reparation, the infant and and the caregiver learn that negative experiences can be transformed. We can't fix the past, but Mm -hmm. we can create new moments of connections and ideally, ideally, we learn that the other person can be trusted. Again, not always. What we learn sometimes is that the other person cannot be trusted. Mm-hmm. And the f- most fascinating part of that good enough research to me is not just that the 30% is good enough, but that in fact, were you to be 100% aligned with your child at all times, that's actually worse for the kid than the 30%. Again, going back to this idea that the reunion is where you build the security, that the mismatching seven out of 10 times leads to the going back, which leads to the way that you actually build that connection. And so- There's a beautiful way to think about estrangement in that way, which is that, okay, say we're 60, our kids come to us and they're like, I want to talk about that 70%, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now's your time. Now's your time. We're repairing. And for me, I love the idea. um, I don't know if this is a new research of Joshua Coleman or whether he is relying on other things, but the principles of separate reality, that to me made so much sense. So this is this idea that, and you talk about this in your article, how there's this baby boomer generation that is completely baffled because they see themselves as the products of 1960, where they rejected their authoritarian parents. Right. And they thought they did it right. That's really interesting. By the way, the baby boomers are the great divorce that we're talking about, right? It's exactly yeah. that age right now. And mm-hmm. so I find that the baby boomers, and of course, many of the estrangement of kids later on in life are children of baby boomers. They're shocked by this. They're like, what do you mean? We did the right thing. You know how many emails I get from parents who's like, I was not abusive. My child doesn't think I'm abusive. Nobody thinks I was abusive, but something I did that was that was wrong because my child doesn't want to be next to me. And they feel like they didn't get it in either direction, not from their parents. Mm-hmm. And then they try to do something different and then not from their children. And, you know, one of the things I think is we used to say that uh, millennials are very dependent on their parents. But I think what we're missing here is that the parents of millennials are very, very dependent on them. And we are dependent on our children in ways that our parents were not dependent on us. Mm -hmm. And what it does, I think, especially in a young age, is that a gap uh, between power and responsibility. Because 
inherently children do not have the same power as their parents, right? Mm-hmm. So the parents have more power, but then the children have so much emotional responsibility. Mm-hmm. And every time, and think of it about work environments, right? Every time there is a gap between how much power you have and how much responsibility you have, there is a problem, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Those need to, to some degree match. And children with parents that need them so, so, so much emotionally, they have a lot of emotional responsibility, but they do not have power. And yeah. that's a problem, right? You know, the the idea of the repair being the most important part, it's just making me think right now so much about what is causing not the estrangement. It's not, it's not full on estrangement, but a break between my generation and my friends and their parents. What it looks like for me, for my friends, is this getting to this time of life where you look back on your childhood and you're like, wait, hold on a second. I thought I was just like this because this is the way people are, but actually, wait. And it's partly because you're raising your kids with this new consciousness and this new, well, everything we know now and all of the emotional intelligence that the last 30 years have, have brought Mm-mm. culture. So we are applying all of that to our children. And then we're, we're experiencing a bit of trauma with that good parenting, because at the same time, we're offering this certain thing to our kid. We're remembering we didn't get that. Mm-hmm. And so then we want to have conversations yeah. with our parents about that. WTF. Right? Because, you know, we're so enlightened and why wouldn't we? This is about connection, right? So then we ha- we go back and we say in our sweet way, what, why? We, we apply what I call presentism. I'm taking all of the knowledge of consciousness I have right now and I'm, I'm rewinding 20, 30, 40, 50 years and asking why you didn't have that. Uh-huh. All the consciousness I have right now. But our parents don't know this thing about 70, 30 and uh, that, that they, the magic they, is in yeah. the repair. They didn't get the, me- get the memo. They didn't get the memo. And so they're like, no, 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 no. They have this fragility. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's the block. Yes. Yeah. Because if the parents would talk to us, would have a little bit of like, oh yeah, this is what parenting is. Let's talk about what you're saying. But that's not what happens. It's like this terror of, no, but I was a good parent and I did my best. Right, right. And that's the block. And in that sense, you see, intention becomes the most important thing, where in fact, reparation intention doesn't matter as much. You can hurt someone and say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. But that intention is not the most important thing in reparation. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so going back to what you asked before, and, and by the way, Amanda, I, I really agree with everything you said about the research on being 100% tuned in. I mean, we know from the research that even research that looks at parents' responsiveness to their um, babies, that being overly responsive is a problem, right? We mm. don't want to be 100% uh, responsive or, or tuned in. And so going back to uh, reparation, I think one of the most important thing in reparation is the ability to recognize the harm. Understanding right when the, the other person comes from, recognize, and it has a few stages in it. One of them is more intellectual and one of them is more emotional because the intellectual part is that like, okay, I understand you're a different person than me. I understand I recognize you as a different person who has a separate experience from my own. And it doesn't matter what I meant. That I matter how I impacted you. Mm-hmm. And, and this is how you felt. And this is why you felt that way, right? But the deeper level of that is the emotional impact it has on me when I really understand that I hurt you. And mm-hmm. that impact changes me. 
to me, that's where the repair comes from. You know, with that mm-hmm. phase when we have to tolerate our own sense of badness, right? Mm-hmm. I did something to you and you are heartbroken. I've seen it, by the way, with couples. Many couples come to therapy really around a reparation that is related to affairs, right? And, and it's like I said, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And how do I repair that? And I think that when it's really hard to repair is when the, the person that hurts the other person has to maintain their sense of goodness. Yes. You know, but I'm a good person, mm-hmm. but I did it just because, and then they have, uh, you know, many, many, many reasons of because this or because of that, because of, and then you lose me, you lose the other person. Mm-hmm. What we want to do is really help them tolerate the sense of you did something that was really hurtful, right? It challenges our, our identity as good people, right? Yes. As opposed to clinging to the sense of goodness. And that is where we can self-correct right? Because yes. it changes me to see it and changes feel. to the paradox exactly. that love is a paradox. It will always forever be a paradox that I can love you as a parent as much as I do and will screw up 70% of the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's just science. Single-handedly impacting our environment for the better, that's a daunting task. But it's possible, and there are incredible people who are living proof that setting your mind to something and really being passionate about it will bring about change. The Goldman Environmental Prize is the world's foremost award honoring grassroots environmental activists. Each year, the prize honors six ordinary people who are making an extraordinary impact for the planet. If you look at this year's winners, you'll learn about Marcel Gomez, who exposed the links between a company's meatpacking practices and illegal deforestation, which led to a major boycott of that company's products. Amazing. You'll learn about Andrea Vidalre, whose relentless leadership resulted in California adopting its most ambitious emissions reduction regulations in history. And there are more amazing stories to discover I can't imagine stories more important than these. Find the stories of this year's prize winners at goldmanprize.org. I have a question. This is true for me, and I'm sure a lot of the pod squad who's listening. There's so many of us that want repair. And like you just said, you're not sure if that person will be able to hold it or acknowledge it or apologize for it. Is there a possibility of repair when you are unsure and almost sure in some (laughs) cases that there won't be the Mm. response that would probably define repair? Mm. Yeah. You know, that brings us again to the difference between reparation, which is a project of two people usually, and forgiveness. I think Mm. there is a lot of room for forgiveness and for repairing in a sense that forgiveness is not always about getting closer to another person, right? Sometimes we forgive in order to let go and say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be close to that person. I forgive them. Goodbye, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, reparation is usually about getting closer to another person. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that what you're saying is that maybe in, in that specific way of forgiving, there is a way to repair. There is a way to allow that person to be close to you and for you to be close to them because I think it's always about how how dangerous it still is 
are you repairing the past or are you or do you need to change something? I mean, some of these cases of abuse are not just about childhood abuse. Those parents mm-hmm. still abuse their children. Parents always right. have power on their children. They mm-hmm. still keep abusing them, right? And so we have to differentiate here between what we do with our limited parents, because our parents are limited, and yep. right? And yep. with the people that we love and still want in our lives, and how do we forgive them? As opposed to, again, we, we often want to forgive people just in order to let ourselves free. And we don't want to have a relationship with them, right? Mm -hmm. That's where I think if you have a parent, like if you're listening to this and you're in a position where you're estranged from your child, or if you're in a situation where you're contemplating estrangement with your parent and they're willing to at least entertain this conversation, that's where I think the principles of separate reality are so powerful because we're in the situation right now where we have parents believing that their children are rewriting the history of the last 30 years and reporting back to them stuff that they cannot even comprehend. And then at the same time, we have those same children feeling like their parents are gaslighting them by saying Mm -hmm. that everything that happened in the last 30 years didn't happen. And so it's further polarizing. But- Again, with the paradox, we have to live in this world in which both things are true. The first generation cannot see, never before have family relationships been based on mutual understanding until now. It's just been mutual obligation. And now we're like, why don't you understand? Why don't you understand? Understanding that you had this experience, you probably did the best you could, and here's how you saw it. And I had this experience, and I want you to see it, that both things can be true in that way. And that if you can just separate and look at their experience as a child that you love, that had this experience, Mm -hmm. that becomes the building block. Right. But how do you move forward? What if it doesn't change? I saw this New Yorker cartoon recently that just crushed me because I was like, it it said it was a dude laying down on a couch and therapist. (laughs) And the guy goes, I had a really rough childhood especially lately. <laughs> and like, that, I feel like that is like, at some point, I'm like, you're 46, Glennon. Just stop looking back and trying to reanalyze and reanalyze and reanalyze, right? Just move forward. But then there's a tricky thing about moving forward, which is, does repair come with different behavior moving forward? Because I think one of the things my friends and I talk and bang our heads against is forgiveness is great, but isn't forgiveness something that you you give when behavior is over? Mm-mm. It's not like a forgive. I forgive you and bless this behavior. Bless forevermore. This is going to be how we relate to each other. Yeah, I'm going to accommodate right. this forever as part of my forgiveness. Right. Yeah. So repair. <laughs> yeah. Does repair usually, in your definition of repair, when you work with people, does it mean that behavior is going to change together? Yeah. Repair has to include, again, repair is everything we're talking about is, is, on, is on a continuum. What Abby was saying before, there is a way to repair something. Uh, maybe it's not the level of repair you want to have, but ideal repair, I'll call it, 
it also includes forgiveness. You can't really fully repair without forgiving. So you see that forgiveness becomes a very tricky thing because forgiveness could be a way to let, to separate also, right? Again, if we think about uh, mm -hmm. divorce, how many times we see people that do not forgive each other in order to keep being invested in each other. Yes. Right. Yes. So we used yes. to say, right? We used to give to say people like, if you want to let, you know, you want to let go, forgive. And you see people get really um, distressed about that because mm -hmm. the truth is that this this process is bidirectional. It's not only that you let somebody go by forgiving; you also have to be ready to to stop the dialogue in yes. order to forgive. Right. So we're yeah. talking mm -hmm. here about about this uh, forgiveness repair thing, we do need to forgive in order to fully repair. I think it's really, really hard to repair without forgiving. You can forgive without repairing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? So then what does it look like to forgive and begin a process of repair? Let's say we're talking about parents, but the parent, what does that look like? Like, what does it sound like? I guess is more, a more important question. How do you start that conversation? If you do feel like you're willing to let go of the past, but only on the condition, the relationship changes. It's really interesting because what you said before, Amanda, about the mutuality, uh, and there is something about thinking about the difference between mutuality and symmetry. Uh, our relationships are mutual, but they're not symmetrical. And to, to mm -hmm. me, to some degree, or for the rest of our lives, our relationship with our parents are not fully symmetrical. I mean, at some point, they become more symmetrical. And at some point, when the parents are very old, we take care of them or we, there is, we have more power, right? Symmetry is about power. Mm. And so again, what does it mean? It, it brings me to some thoughts that you, you talked about, about uh, what is uh, unconditional love in one of your episodes. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that's interesting because to me, unconditional love is about uh, the, uh, the acceptance that the relationship is not symmetrical. I do not breastfeed mm. my child and expect them to say, thank you for the milk. Mm -hmm. I have my responsibility. I have a different role and different responsibility in that relationship. And so it's not conditional. It's, I don't need your thank you. So again, if what you're saying is what happened with our own parents who are older and limited in some ways, and, uh, we cannot fully repair with them. They might never even understand what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And what do we do there? How do we repair or, or forgive? That's what you mean. Mm -hmm. yeah. What do we do? And I think to some degree, it goes back to accepting people's limitations, which is our own limitations. Can I, can I accept that I am a limited human? As, as a parent too, I'm a parent. And I'm, mm -hmm. and I'm a limited parent, probably. I'm not, hopefully not toxic. You know, when sometimes when people say, but how do you know if you're toxic? And I think like, you know, it's like in mental health when a patient comes in and they say, maybe I am psychotic. And I would say to them, you know, if you were psychotic, you wouldn't say, maybe I'm psychotic. You would say, I'm not mm. psychotic. You're psychotic. <laughs> right? Oh. <laughs> and it's the same <laughs> That's thing. Good. Right? It's the same thing. I've been worried about being toxic for a while. So that's really comforting. I think the toxic people already <laughs> left. They're already not listening to us. <laughs> you know, oh, there is yeah. something about being worried that you're bad. We usually defend against badness. We usually said, I'm not bad. You're bad. You know, yeah. every time somebody makes me think about their relationship in blaming and feeling guilty. I feel guilty. Children do that all the time. 
And the minute I feel guilty, I say, your fault. Mm-hmm. Bang! Mm-hmm. I send you back the ball. I'm like, not mine. Your yep. fault. Hot potato. We call yeah. it hot potato. <laughs> the second hot potato yeah. of guilt. Yeah. Of, mm-hmm. gu- of oh. guilt and blame. Right? Mm-hmm. So when you feel bad and all of those people that feel bad about themselves and, and have to deny it because it's too much, then it's like, no, no, I'm not bad. I'm good. Right? Mm-hmm. And from that position, a lot of people do really, really harmful things to others. The position of a victim. Mm-hmm. The position of I'm never bad. And the inverse of that is true. Maybe it's the moment where you are admitting and actually able to acknowledge and embrace that you have been an imperfect parent is maybe the moment that you can become the parent that your kid needed. I'm thinking Mm -hmm. of the Tara Westover educated book where she Mm -hmm. said, I know only this, that when my mother told me she had not been the mother to me that she wished she'd been, she became that mother for the first time. Wow. Oof. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably our process as parents is to really know we're not perfect. And, and instead, you know, there's also a defensive place. I said, I'm not perfect, you know, but no, but try mm-hmm. self-correct. What do you want? What, what do, do you want, want from me? I didn't mean, and throw mm-hmm. it again back on the children and blaming them. I think that kids of what we call toxic people are people that are always blamed. And therefore, they have a lot of self-doubt. There's a lot of gaslighting. There's a lot of, there mm-hmm. is a parent there that really cares uh, about their own self-esteem. They want to feel good. Mm-hmm. They want right. to feel good, right? They, they care about their needs and about their self. And a lot of it is about fragile self-esteem. It's like, mm-hmm. ah. I think that's so true. Yeah. I yeah. think a lot of the inability to like d- dig in with your kid or dig in with whoever really has to do with fragility. It has yep. to do with yeah. the fragile self-esteem. I'm a bad parent and that's why you're suffering. So uh, what does one do in that case? Yeah. If we're sitting here thinking, okay, I identify with that. Like, I don't think that mm-hmm. my parent is a bad person at all. I think my parent is so terrified of considering that they're a bad person, that they don't have the strength, flexibility, whatever it takes to enter this these conversations with me. Is it possible to repair and move forward without the inclusion of that parent. Yeah, you know, I think some of it is also about empathy. Again, if we talk about what traditionally we call toxic people, and I don't think toxic is, a, is like a very big definition, but I think parents that are hurtful to their children, it is, some of it is about always maintaining their own self-esteem, making sure that, that their children are uh, fulfilling their own needs. And there is very little ability for empathy and for remorse. The way that, that you're talking about even protecting your parents, right? First of all, you're filled with empathy and you already see that you could really hurt. They, they, it might be too devastating for them to know mm-hmm. all those things that we uh, think about them, right? So hypothetically speaking then... <laughs> Just asking for a friend here. How would you suggest, because I do think that that's super relative to a lot of us, that we don't want to upset our parents because they have this idea of the way that they raised us in one way. Can you give me like bullet points of what to say in a conversation with said parent that's like, hey, listen, I want to be empathetic. I want to, I understand that, but I also need you to know that this was hard for me. Because that's caring too. If we didn't care, if we were apathetic, that's the other thing. I think like 
this to, to want to repair, to want to actually talk about something, to want to to not quiet quit your relationship, right? To not yeah. just be like, I'm just going to go dead inside around my parents and just make it through. That's a, that takes a lot of love and energy and effort. And a wish so, to be close to them, right? I think that's yes. what you're already talking about. You wanna, I want to trust them. I want to be close to them. I want to tell them everything. I mean, again, we're going to couples. It's really, really... Uh, interesting because what we talk about parents and children, we can always apply that to couples as well, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, including ruptures and repair and and this dynamic of chase and dodge and how parents like go after their children in ways that make their children have no other option but really um, escape. I look at you. I do that with our youngest. I do it. She yeah. actually looks scared when she sees me. I want her to like tell me things, and then yeah. I'm just so I can feel my annoying self. For example, parents usually of kids who who want to cut ties with them. What happened to the parents is they become so dysregulated that they start pursuing the child and they pursue them angrily. Like how Mm. dare, you know, and and there is like angry pursuit does not work. That Mm. you will never get what you want from that, right? And again, going back to what we know from attachment theory, from infant research, it's one of of my uh, dear friends, uh, Dr. Beatrice Beebe from Columbia University. When you look at what she does and the infant research and video analysis of parents and children, what you see is that, especially the disorganized uh, parent, by the way, uh, it's based on the understanding that... that, uh, our system needs to be regulated, right? We can't always be in uh, in contact with each other all the time. We need we look at each other's eyes, we move our head away, we come back. There is a dance there. And mm-hmm. for those babies, when the babies need to regulate, when something is too much for them and they move their head away, the parent gets really, really anxious, right? And think mm-hmm. about relationships, think about estrangement, even when the child said, wait, I need to move my head away. The insecure parent becomes really frightened and they think like, oh, my baby is telling me I'm a bad mom. Mm -hmm. And so what they do instead of allowing the baby to regulate, and babies always come back, right? Because what else do they have? They have you. Right. It's <laughs> so good to remember. So, right? yeah, you know what? Even in a, as a mother, I had to remind myself that because we all forget that where are they going to go? Right? Who yeah. else do they have? With the 2024 games in Paris on the horizon. I've gotten nostalgic about my international career. And when I look back, there are a few things I would have done differently to make sure I made the most of my time abroad. And one of those things was to learn a non-English language more fully. A daunting task, yes, but a much easier one when you consider that Rosetta Stone can get you fast language acquisition through their intuitive research-based dynamic immersion approach. That's why they're the most trusted language learning program and have been for years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. Whether it's Dutch, Arabic, or Chinese, don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, We Can Do Hard Things listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off Visit rosettastone.com slash we can. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. 
redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash we can today. What you're describing, you're talking about babies, but you also could be describing just teenage parenting. Yes. Yes. Right? Yes. They look away in a million ways and we go, lose yeah. our shit. Or I guess I should speak to, for myself. Yes, yeah. yes. I think this is the beginning. We're going to be cut off from each other forever. Then we pursue, 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 uh-huh. which makes them shut down even more. I have three teenagers at home. I have three mm. teenagers. Oh, do you imagine that? Right? The feeling yes. of, and even if I think, talking about estrangement and what does it do? I went into a real emotional investigation here, uh, mm. thinking about our own fears and how do we think about it? Do I speak from a position of a parent or from a child? I'm also a child. It's like I see that we all move our self states, right? We're the parents, we're the children. We have this with our parents, we have that with our children. I'm thinking, like, what is happening? And, you know, in my professional writing, a lot of it is about relationships and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yes. And thinking, like, okay, how do we deal with this uh, thing about separating the most the most precious thing? How are we too dependent on our children or mm-hmm. not? And so going back to Chase and Dodge and what you're saying about uh, being parents of teenagers, I really think it's true. It's true for romantic relationships too. What happens is that the parent, instead of saying, where else are they going to go, right? They have me. <laughs> And they're going to go and go make believe that they have their own life. And then they'll come back. And Mm. I'm secure. What those parents of babies do is that they chase the baby. So the baby moves the head a little bit and the parents will do, it will come into their face and say, come back, come back, come back, baby. And they do it in very, very interesting ways, right? To hold the baby back. And of course, as you can predict what happens to the baby is that the baby becomes even more dysregulated. Mm -hmm. So the baby moves their head even more. And at some point, the baby starts getting really distressed and start crying. And then, of course, the parent says, you see, I am a bad parent. The baby hates me. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's where it goes. Right. Probably with teenagers, too. I'm just anxious. projecting. I, I'm just like, I need to get into therapy now. I, I realize because I, I feel like all I'm doing is projecting all of my insecurities. It's interesting. And that's it's what we all do to some degree. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what we have to remember. We all do that. We're all those insecure parents. Again, on a, on a continuum, some of us right. more and some of us less. And we all think like, maybe, maybe they don't like me. Maybe they're, and some, right? And some parents are more destructive. <laughs> right? yeah. Maybe she doesn't and like me. So what we'll fix that is if I get like up me. in her face 24 seven <laughs> yeah. and make sure all she sees is my face. Exactly. Yeah. Pursue, pursue, pursue. Yes. Right? That's going to work. And the, <laughs> Yes. But ironically, we're, we're pursuing, but we're pursuing just the wrong way. Because right. when you look at what the studies show about effective reconciliation, in cases of, of parental estrangement, the most effective way of reaching reconciliation is when the parent takes the first step and they they take responsibility for past harms, even if it's totally different from the experience of their separate sphere of their mm-hmm. understanding and their experience. They hear with empathy and they take responsibility and they try to see through the adult child's perspective and they express a willingness to change their behavior. So it's like all that energy that's going into pursuing, which is so often doubling down on the same 
problematic behaviors that have led to the estrangement. Right. Just needs to be refunneling into coming from a place of security Hmm. in knowing, I acknowledge that this experience is true for you of your childhood. And yet I still want to be your parent. And this is how I'm going to pursue you through your experience. Right. And that is really, really right. And I think that some of it, it's different than the pursuit that we're talking about of the of the mm-hmm. chase and dodge, right? It's not angry pursuit. It's not, it's mm-hmm. empathic. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it, we can even call it pursuit. It is, mm-hmm. I think Response. it has to start with self-reflection. Parents mm-hmm. are there. And again, the parents that are not what we call toxic are parents that are able to feel remorse, that are able to feel empathy and able to feel that, okay, I want to hear what your experience was. I want to hear it mm-hmm. as if I am not that parent that you're saying. Yes, because you're not. Right? right. You're not. You're a totally different person. You're not that parent mm-hmm. anymore. Right. And you put yourself aside, right? Speaking yes. of fragile self-esteem, as if nobody's mm-hmm. telling you that you did something wrong. And you listen to that person the way you listen to anybody else that mm-hmm. says to you, I'm in pain. This is what happened to me. And you're just like, tell me more. Tell me yes. more. Right. Yeah. And I feel like, Abby, I owe you an answer about your parents. Okay. <laughs> because we're her friend's parents. Her friend's parents. Yes. Sorry, sorry, but your friend's parents. <laughs> uh, and, and, <laughs> and I want to say something. It's for all of us that, I mean, I'm sure there are many, many people who listen to us and say, I really want to be closer to my parents. I really mm, want to right. talk to them about that. And my feeling is that the way we do it is, is very gently. Uh, we lead with um, integrity and love mm-hmm. and with emotional honesty. You know what the myth about emotional honesty is that emotional honesty is about telling others the truth about them. Like when mm-hmm. people say, what? I told her the truth. I'm emotionally I honest. I told it like it is. I told it like it is. I'm Wait, brutally we honest. have to say that again. Yes. The, okay. myth the myth about emotional honesty, honesty right, is that is that you tell people the truth about themselves. Yes, yes. that's right. And then when they say right. something, Whoa. they say, you hurt my feelings. They say, what? I'm an emotionally honest person. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so no, so no, that's not emotional honesty. <laughs> what is it? What is emotional honesty? The emotional honesty really is the ability to tell the truth about yourself. Damn. And that means that you, first of all, have to look for the truth about yourself, right? Yeah. You, first yeah. of all, have to look and see, like, wait a second, who am I? Why do I feel that way? Why now? And emotional honesty is really the ability to share with people you love your struggle, your limitations, mm. your pain. And that is a way to start a conversation like that. You know, mm. it is a way to say... Oh that's that's my experience. It's not about you. I'm not saying you're bad. I'm not saying, right? Because you see a lot of that, those conflicts and difficult relationships are about the split between good and bad, right? And you're bad. Right. No, you're wrong. bad. Yes. Right. You're yes. did something. Exactly. It's really about like, everybody's like, it's about fragile self-esteem. Again, it's about like, <gasps> maybe I'm a bad mother. So no, you're a bad child. Right, the child mm-hmm. is so bad. This baby is so bad. Have you heard people, people yes. saying that? <laughs> Such baby. a bad yes. baby. Oh, it's crying. <laughs> <laughs> so a bad baby, just know, is a child that covers for a mom who really feels bad about herself. <laughs> oh wow. Oh, Khalid, Dang. I 
love you so much. I just, I mean, can we get on? I feel like it's been five minutes and we've only just begun. Thank you for your brilliance and your humor and the way you look at the world. Um, and Pod Squad, this is hard stuff. We can do hard things. If I were you, I might start with the idea of emotional honesty being sharing your own experience and your own limitations. Right now, I'm wondering (laughs) (laughs) if things might not be working out for me because I truly thought (laughs) hard conversations were about clearly stating the other person's limitations. (laughs) Oh, this is going to change my life. That's what we love to do. (laughs) This is going to change everything. And I think we need to end with a shout out to Catherine. Catherine. All of the... People who are listening to this and knowing that the options that we've discussed in the next steps may not ever apply to them and just honoring the duality of the grief and the self-preservation and that, you know, you have done what you needed to do, like Galit said, to protect your child self and your current self. And we grieve that ongoing loss with you. And you can always talk about it here. It's just so important to remember that sometimes the truest, best decisions we make still come with a lot of pain. Like I think we make the mistake of thinking this hurts. So maybe I did it wrong, but I think something can hurt and still be exactly right. Yeah. Right. Many times, right? Yeah. All right, Pod Squad, we love you and um, we will see you back here next time. I give you Tish Melton and Brandy Carlisle. I walked through fire, I came out the other side. I chased desire, I made sure I got what's mine. And I continued to
We Can Do Hard Things is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Especially be sure to rate and review the podcast if you really liked it. If you didn't, don't worry about it. It's fine. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location. It's the neighborhood. It's so much more. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with state rankings and student-to-teacher ratios. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework.